According to the laws and ordinances of complete discography, any host of the podcast in time of an irreparable breakdown of schedule and procedure shall, at the request of a producer of the podcast who is in good standing, form themselves into a recording of the session of discussion for the book Men-at-Arms. Through the fathomless depths of space swims the star turtle, the great Atuan. And on its back are four nerds trying to figure out just what it is that makes their Terry Pratchett's work both timely and timeless. So, square bracket, book reference of choice, close bracket, comma, square bracket, additional humorous or serious episode reference, close bracket, comma, and join us on our journey through Men at Arms and the complete discography. We are forming an emergency podcast militia. <laughs> so tonight we are discussing the 15th book in the Discworld series, Men at Arms, uh, first published in 1993. Um, I don't want to ask Justin how old they were, um, so I'm not going to. <laughs> <laughs> we're getting into the realm of time where I actually remember those years. Uh, and joining us for this podcast, uh, we're very excited to introduce uh, Sharang Biswas from, uh, and I will let Sharang introduce himself. Hi, I'm Sharang Biswas. I'm a game designer, writer, and uh, artist uh, currently based in Manhattan. And I met Aaron and Justin running uh, role-playing games uh, with for them uh, for Magpie Games, and we became friends. And as soon as I heard that Sharang was a big Discworld fan, I was like, I need him on our podcast. Yeah, for many years, since I was like 13 years old, about 13 years old, yeah. What was your first intro to D- Discworld? Um, so my first, I was in, it was, the, there was a small library in the British Center sort of thing in Abu Dhabi. And uh, it wasn't like the official like British consulate thing. It was like a separate thing, uh, like a cultural thing. Uh, and I found a copy of uh, Light Fantastic, which is not my favorite Discworld book. Um, but I, I read my 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 mom's friend, this elderly Scottish woman named Dorothy, was like, "Oh, um, Sharon would like this," so I, I got that. And I, I, I liked it enough. Then I found that they had. The, they had a, a City Watch trilogy and a Death trilogy, so Men at Arms actually my third Discworld book. I read Light Fantastic, Guards, Guards, and then Men at Arms. Nice. Solid start. And then The Carpet People, I think. Oh, oh no, yeah. Interesting. Feet of Clay and then The Carpet People, yeah. Yeah, in non-Discworld, the, we have a, several collections of, of Ter- Sir Terry's um, non-Discworld writing, and it's all, it's all really interesting. And I haven't read all of it. Like, I haven't, I've read Johnny and the Bomb and not Johnny and the Dead. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've read Truck, no, I've read all three of Bromeliad. I haven't read, uh, yeah, there are a couple that I haven't. Like Strata, Dark Side of the Sun, I haven't read. So. Nation is really good. Nation's really good. I really, I have Nation. Oh, and I have two signed copies, actually. Ooh. Oh, wow. Wintersmith signed. Mm-hmm. And I have uh, one of the others signed. I can't remember which, because my, my mom's Scottish friend, when she left the UAE and moved back to the UK... Um, for Christmas, like two years later, she sent me signed copies where, you know, Sir Terry Pratchett wrote my like childhood nickname and said, Merry Christmas. Oh my God, that's amazing. 
And if you were to run a game in Discworld, yeah. what system would you use and what plot arc do you think you would go for? So I know that currently people are talking about Kevin Pulp's Swords of the Serpentine as a good system to run Discworld, uh, which I th- well, to run Ank- Ankh-Morpork stuff. Uh, in, generally, in fact, uh, which I think is uh, could be a cool one. Um, what I would run, I don't know. I I think it could be really fun to run the witches stuff mm. um, uh, because that 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 that's just kind of wild. Um, I think the witches stuff would be good. I don't know. There are a couple of newer systems that I was like co co like I was one of the like smaller writers and stuff that could use that. But I'm thinking what could actually be really funny would be a um, modified version of uh, uh, Jason Morningstar's uh, fiasco. Um, making it a little less pessimistic and a little more because because this world books are rarely pessimistic, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, but they yeah. do have the like shenanigans of of fiasco, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think that could be an interesting uh, playset. Um, yeah, yeah, that could be really fun. Yeah, like a custom playset is nice in that it's GM less. But yeah, I would love to say one of my games. My games are too depressing um, for the most part. And what's your favorite AO3 Discworld tag? I actually have not read that much Discworld fanfiction. I have been mainly this uh, awkwardly this uh, this whole summer been reading a lot of uh, gay fanfiction, partially because I've had my first few erotica commissions and to prepare for them, I have to read a lot of erotica. Uh, and I, I, I searched on the Discworld thing to find, ooh, let's find the gay Discworld stuff. There's not a lot of high quality gay Discworld stuff. That's unfortunate. Um, yeah, I mean, yeah, at least that I've found. At least that I've found. So we're gonna get at least a little bit into to one of my to one of my Discworld ships with this book, uh, which I'm slowly picking up on, like slightly. One of my friends is like, you know, like uh, like vibes veterinary, and I'm just like, I like that for the pure. And I was like, I'm like, okay, I like when they when they first explained this to me, I was like, mm, I'm not sure about this, but then he's like, you know, you're gonna like this and. Are you going to pick up on it? I'm like reading it. I'm like, I like this on some like level that makes me slightly dirty. <laughs> I mean, Justin, you're reading the books in order and you haven't really passed much yet, this right? Is the, like, I have not read any of the books before doing this series. Men at Arms is the latest I've got in the series now. Okay, because there is some interesting stuff later in like Night Watch between Vimes and Veterinary, okay. Veterinary and Excellent. stuff. More fodder for you, Justin. <laughs> yes. I will say Angua and Carrot is one of my favorite romances um, in the disc. And, and because it was, I was very young when I started reading them, it's one, it's one of my formative like romances in literature, right? Um, but uh, my favorite are um, Susan and, and the person who I will not name because Justin has not um, reached that yet. Justin hasn't and, seen Susan yet either. Oh, okay. That's, that's uh, oh, next, right. That's, that's next cool. book. Cool. Right. That's yeah. next book. So Susan and, and her paramour and... Mm. Karen Angua are my favorite uh, romance. There are, there are not that many romances in the Discworld. There's like Magrat, right? Magrat and the King of Lanker and Varence, all that stuff. Yeah. There's also there's also Vimes and Sybil. Oh, there's so, Vimes and Sybil, yeah. and then there's the making money, raising steam. That one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I think we 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 put we figured out early on. That there's a lot of attempted romance in like the first like seven or eight books, and I think Terry wisely realizes that there's like he should not put that in every book 
<laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, wasn't there something in pyramids that was kind of, and uh, there was something in moving pictures between the two people, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. It, it it feels like there's a mandatory female protagonist who gets in there for quirky romance stuff. Uh, the interaction with the the lady protagonist of pyramids, whose name I cannot remember, like wasn't. That wasn't the worst part of that book by far. I, Pyramid is one of the few that I've only read once. Because many of them I've read more than one, but Pyramids, Eric, um, you know, some of those I've only read once. So Probably for the best, honestly. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it is, it is clear there is, for me at least, there is a band in the middle of the best books. And then the first few and then the last few are not my favorite, right? So uh, so sorry, Justin. I hope you don't feel the same way when you reach those last few books. But uh, there's definitely a strong band in the middle. Like, these are my favorite. Anyway, we should probably start actually talking yeah. about the book. Yeah. <laughs> I am Aaron, assistant groundskeeper for B.S. Johnson's Public Park. I'm Anna, and I'm trying to stand out from within a crowd of interchangeable Emmas. I am Justin, newly temporarily promoted constable. Don't salute! I am Sharung, jester in training, who's having trouble finding a face that he wants to paint. So, I'm going to skim over a lot because there's a lot that happens in this book, but really just kind of one main core plot. Uh, We start not with a wide shot of Vatuan, but instead a, a cold open slash exposition by way of newly promoted Corporal Carrot Iron Founderson, sending a letter home to his parents explaining that Captain Vimes is marrying Lady Civil Ramkin and retiring from the watch to become a gentleman of leisure. Then we get a villain set up in the form of Edward Death, uh, Edward Death, I'm not sure which, uh, a descendant of a uh, landed family with a very specific feeling of how things would just be better if we had a king again, which is a surprisingly common theme for the guards books. Uh, meanwhile, the Night Watch is becoming a modern police force, more accurately reflecting the makeup of a modern metropolis like Ankh-Morpork, with the addition of Lance Constable Detritus, a troll, Lance Constable Cuddy, a dwarf, and Lance Constable Angua, a... We'll get into that. Uh, after a crash course in Carrot's unique style of universe-deforming policing, where he stands between a horde of trolls and a gaggle of dwarves and talks them down... A crime is committed. There's an explosion at the Assassin's Guild, not as per usual the Alchemist's Guild. Something has gone missing from the Guild Museum. A string of improbable murders of artisans, guild members, and others leads to veterinary absolutely positively forbidding Vimes from investigating, which, like telling the senior witches not to meddle in things, has exactly the intended effect. As does the attempt on Vimes' life by a sniper. A weapon that should not be in Ankh-Morpork and should, uh, should not be is to blame a gun. With the return of Gaspod the Wonder Dog, Asai, to the fore of the Discworld metaplot, we discovered that the W Angua represents is not her gender, uh, instead it's her species. Angua is a werewolf, which holds certain advantages in her line of work. Detritus the Troll and Cuddy the Dwarf, representatives of species that try to murder each other on a frequent basis, start to begrudgingly trust and like each other, and in a particularly famous scene to those of us who have read most of the Discworld Ovra, are trapped in the Pork Futures warehouse, where we discover that the well below freezing temperatures cause Detritus' superconducting intelligence to emerge. There's a scene familiar to every fan of hard-boiled cop dramas, as Veterinary demands Vimes hand over his sword and his badge, but relents a little bit and lets Vimes keep the badge, as he is retiring in a few days anyway. 
Vimes gets very drunk, the kind of drunk that takes determination and effort. And in their attempts to detox him, the young guards and we learn that Vimes uses half his salary to keep guards' widows and orphans housed and fed as there is no pension for a guard. Cuddy and Detritus go on an accidental subterranean excursion and discover that prime, the prime suspect in these murders has been dead for enough time to fail to account for at least one murder. While Ankhmore pork trolls and dwarves are rioting over the justified or unjustified arrest of Coalface the Troll for one of the early murders, Captain Quirk of the Day Watch attempts to disband what remains of the Night Watch. Unfortunately for a mayonnaise quirk, aside from being a veritable mountain of a himbo, Carrot also knows to the letter each line of the laws and ordinances of Ankh-Morpork. Using a forgotten provision of the law, Carrot forms a citizen's militia, and Cuddy and Detritus cut a swath through every able-bodied troll and dwarf that cross their paths, recruiting them into the new watch. Order is slowly restored as more and more troublemakers are incorporated into the policing body. Having had her watch uniform stolen by Foul Ulran while going uh, undercover, uh, Angua ends up in Carrot's bed, and prodded on by Gaspod, they reach an understanding. However, she is touched by moonlight afterwards, and Carrot reacts as a dwarf or other person who doesn't have a particularly trusting relationship with the uh, undead might have when confronted by a werewolf in his bed, to the temporary detriment of their relationship. The day of the wedding dawns, and as Vimes comes to grips with his impending retirement, and the librarian investigates every fascinating aspect of the grand organ created by bloodied stupid Johnson, the patrician arrives. The sniper attacks once more from a perch on the Tower of Art, having killed Corporal Cuddy already, and wounds veterinarian Carrot. After a chase leading into the sewer, Carrot is narrowly saved by the sudden imposition of Angua in wolf form, though she takes four slugs to her body in the process. Vimes collects the gun and immediately feels its siren song, just as Deeth and the new assailant did. Together, Carrot and Vimes pursue the sniper, revealed to be Dr. Cruces, head of the Assassin's Guild, into his offices, where Cruces lays out the evidence that Carrot is the rightful heir to the throne. Carrot, seeing Vimes threatened by Dr. Cruces, who retrieves the gun, drives his sword through the chest of Dr. Cruces, as well as four feet of stone behind. Angua later makes a full and quick recovery as the bullets were not silver, and the world rearranges itself around Carrot's newfound understanding that the undead are people too. Vimes is married and retires, temporarily, because Carrot sees the danger of the watch following Mr. Carrot's orders because of who he is and not because he is an officer. He maneuvers Vetinari into boosting the city guard up to a full complement of personnel, and a knighthood for Vimes, along with the title of Commander of the Watch. There's a lot that I left out. It's a good book. You should read it. Yes, absolutely. It is one of my favorite Discworld books. So I have like five or six of them that I think are my favorite, and it's one of them. So, Justin, how do you feel about Sam Vimes in this book? This is a much more. What is the word I'm looking for? It's a much more ensemble piece than Guards, Guards, I would say. I think Vimes is maybe, I would say, possibly even a secondary character for either the first two acts of this book, really. Getting along well with Sybil, uh, and he is getting married, which is which is going to follow with him retiring from the watch, which he is very not happy with. Like he he likes Sybil. He loves Sybil, but he is a He's he's copper. happy about getting married, but he's not happy about retiring. Yeah, exactly. I think the really interesting piece of Vimes lore that we learn in this book is that his direct ancestor was the one who took the axe to the last king of Ankh-Morpork. Right. We only learn that here. That gets explored later in like Jingo and stuff mm-hmm. a lot, right? But, yep. Yeah. Um, Old Stoneface. We and, and we get a I think we get a little bit more of like just 
more about who he is as just a person uh, by him being exposed to his what I would say his complete opposite, which is rich people. Yes, I feel like it Vimes having to actually interact with the elite of the city in in more than just kind of an abstract fashion um, really cements his worldview, mm-hmm. which is which is interesting to see. And I love the interactions between him and all the jackass ar- aristocrats. I also feel you also see, because in the, since I've read the whole book, I've seen later on when he interacts with other species stuff, like the goblins and orcs and things. But here, you see, for the first time, he act, like he's, the book starts with him having species bias, right? He like says things here and there, and then only later, in, as the book progresses, does he realize actually that's not that good and look at all these rich people who have a lot of species like like mm, this isn't okay uh which is i think uh really interesting because like later on you'll see that you know all the like some of the characters from this book become important in future books and they're all kinds of like ethnicities and stuff mm-hmm. um so um i think you see a bit of that a bit of like character growth there with with vibes which is interesting yeah, yeah, and he he reflects one of the one of the several aspects that we see of uh, the tr- so-called traditional coppers reacting to the modernization efforts. You know, set set against Quirk, who's not really an antagonist antagonist so much as just a jerk. <laughs> Quirk the jerk. We also see a lot more carroty carrot this book. Yeah. He's he's actually matured into the character who we know as Carrot. And it's interesting, too, because, like, in Guards Guards, that was supposed to be a Carrot book. And Vime sort of stole the show, right? Um, I feel like Men at Arms is in some ways supposed to be a Vime's book. But Carrot steals the show. Mm-hmm. I think Carrot, I mean, a lot of people think or feel this about Granny Weatherwax, but I think Carrot is the most interesting character in the Discworld books for me, right? Not because, like, Granny Weatherwax is really badass and there's a lot of cool things going on with her and stuff, but I think Carrot is, like, as a human, is very interesting because he has these... and you. I'm sorry, he's a dwarf. Uh, as a person, is very interesting <laughs> um, because you see... A, like you, this like in God's God, you don't explore this as much. But in Men at Arms, you actually see like, oh yeah, he has all these naive moments. He has bad spelling. He's like whatever. But then near the end, when like when like the midden hits the windmill, as the Igors say, um, <laughs> he like actually like you can see that that ruthless streak that gets really explored in like Fifth Elephant, for example. That yeah. like ruthless streak really shows in this book near the end, and you're like, I don't know if this guy is just really smart or really smart sometimes or really smart about very specific things because like that interaction with lord veterinary for example at the end you're like mm-hmm. oh carrot whoa what happened there or like that, that really like sort of like calm way where he's like what did he say um personal isn't the same as important right <laughs> yeah uh, oh which, yeah that's a right line. which vimes comments on but like you 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 see like 
Cat is the most interesting character because he has this naivete and this like he he doesn't get metaphors and and in some senses he's simple like the book uses the word simple a lot but he's also the one of the most ruthless characters yeah uh, in all the books and you see that a lot in like Fifth Elephant I'm like woo carrot he's like I'm to- I totally have the hots for carrot but yeah. And my wife brought this up when we were talking about this, but uh, there's a lot of stuff that Terry's referencing in here about sort of the Indo-European idea of a king, Mm -hmm, right? mm -hmm. Who's the the avatar of their land, for better or for worse. And the way he repeatedly describes Carrot as just sort of everything else falls to the background or he wears the city like a a jacket, you know? Mm -hmm, mm Mm-hmm. Describes himself as the the ideal of a policeman, a, a man of the polis, the city. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I don't know about, because I, you know, it came out in 93 when I was three years old, but I feel that it was a great subversion of the birthright trope. Um, because every, every book, the first, Guards, Guards talks about Carrot and his birthright, and everyone knows this. He knows this. Every single book that he is in has a king reference in it, mm-hmm. right? Um, yeah, but it subverts yeah. it because he doesn't, it, it doesn't, he doesn't do that. He's like, nope, I'm an, I'm kind of a himbo at times. Um, I'm a sexy himbo, but whatever. Um, uh, I mean, himbo is by definition sexy in, in the trope, but anyway, um, but yeah, I think he is, I think, the most interesting character in the disc. Not necessarily, like, I'm not saying that uh, there aren't characters who have, like, cool stuff happen. But I think as a portrait of a person, he is the most interesting. And, you know, especially this book forward, Carrot is sort of what I think of when we talk about lawful good isn't lawful stupid. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's a good idea. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, and and the way that Carrot he he also has a very good feeling for like the spirit of the law and the spirit of justice, not necessarily the letter. And he he in fact will sort of manipulate the letter to serve the spirit. Mm-hmm. And of course, I, I love again this was formative romance and books for me. I love his interaction with Angua. They're like so fun. Uh, they're like they're like really fun. Like even in even the later books when they're like going to the dwarf battlebred museum and stuff, and I'm like, <laughs> and you know the puns that happen that you'll see those Justin, um, the like misunderstanding and stuff. But like, I I, I really liked the relationship with Angua, and I was sad that we didn't see a lot more of it in the later books. I was always like, uh. one thing that Pratchett does really well, I think, is very interesting, is that in the um in the guards books you sympathize a lot with the guards but in the non-guards books you see the perspective of others who think the guards are annoying right Mm -hmm. like in the truth i'm like well the guards are being so annoying right now Uh, (laughs) i think it was in raising taxes or or one of those one of the moist ones i'm like yeah the guards are being really annoying right now um but in the guards books you're like no 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 i sympathize completely with the guards it's it's a really interesting perspective shift so yeah uh angua we don't have a lot to go on yet aside from the fact that she's a werewolf and uh, we'll learn more about her, especially in the fifth elephant. I, I like in uh, in Feet of Clay, we start seeing a lot as with her friendship with Cherry Littlebottom. And mm. I, I like that we start breaking into her character. We see some of it here, which I like, right? We start mm-hmm. seeing in her interact with Gaspode and stuff, like what kind of person she is. But yeah, her and, and, and Carrot are, are my favorite like couple. The, the other two new guards people are uh, Detritus and Cuddy. I think Detritus um, is probably my favorite new character in this book. Yeah. She's not new. 
Oh, right. he, he, no, he no, has no, cameos he in no, all the books. Due to the guards' books, but like, mm. no, he, yes, we, we saw him in Moving Pictures last, I believe. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, oh uh, gosh, he's, he's a delight. I, I like, I, I like Discworld Trolls, and, um, we, we, we've been going back and forth about Discworld casting things, and I internally vocalize everything that I read. Um, and in, in my head, Detritus is mo-capped and uh, voiced by Andre the Giant. Yeah, I, I like, well, I read, like you said, the, the, the famous scene, uh, I remember that, that's just burnt into my head, right? Even mm-hmm. when I was young, when I wasn't reading anything about the books, I was just reading the books. I remember that scene being really interesting to me. And also just in, in terms of like, you know, um, Pratchett has this great, great thing of like introducing the like laws of the world in really fun ways. This idea that, oh yeah, trolls are smarter in the cold because of their like brain chemistry is like really, was really interesting to me. Mm-hmm. So. Super conductivity. That's... And it's the, it's really fascinating too with the, kind of flip on the trope of you know, it's not that stupid trolls go to the city it's that going to the city where it's warm makes them stupid yeah 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 which yeah, is yeah. fascinating yeah uh, and, I, and i do remember when i when i first read the book uh, i remember being very sad when cuddy died um uh it yeah. was yeah. it was it was really cool because they, remember they have this like this, like, you know, buddy cop sort of trope um, kind of twisted a little bit um, with, you know, with uh, Detritus and Cuddy. And I remember when he died, I was like, oh, well, that's sad. Um, oh. uh, because he, he'd become a protagonist of that book, right? You see his perspective a lot and he dies. You're like, oh, wow. Because yes. Pratchett also doesn't kill many characters, many protagonists. Yeah. It's very Is, rare. Isn't Cuddy the first character death, really? Aside from various things in Mort. And, right and uh, Reaper Man. Do we ever see Vorbis's perspective in Small Gods? No, right. A, a little bit. Oh, yeah, true. he's probably the first significant character death. Yeah, uh, and I think it's made all the more meaningful, really, by I, I mean, the point of it is the the fact that Detritus and Cuddy have come across their species boundaries to to develop this the this, the friendship to the point where Detritus would go on a rampage know when his friend dies which was very sweet like he like pauses and i'm like oh and it was it was very sweet um uh we also have the return of nobby and colin our two favorite other sort of old guard coppers um they're sort of they're more comedic relief in this book they're they're more avatars of police tropes than they are like characters but that's fine they're they're more like avatars of the watch (laughs) Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're the avatars of chaos energy too. At least in Nabi's case. Yeah, I like that the Discord. I like that there are so, some flat characters, right? Like it's fine because it's it adds the color and texture and humor. Uh, it's you can people play off of them. One thing I will say is that rereading um, things about Nobby, I I wince a little bit. I'm like, mm, I wonder, like, it, does it does this feel like body shaming sometimes? Because Nobby is repeatedly described as like nearly human and blah blah blah, you know things like that. I'm like, oh, maybe he yeah. just has an unusual body configuration. I feel like all of those jokes do fall flat these days. I mean, I like the character a lot, but sometimes I'm like, oh, let's not be mean about his body so much. I get like being mean about him, like you know, stealing stuff off of the corpses and stuff. But that that's funny to be like, oh yeah, he's kind of a weirdo for doing things like that. Uh, but sometimes I'm like, oh yeah, he's he's pimply, but like you know, let him be pimply. Uh, and then Colin, was it in Guards where he's described as nature's sergeant? 
I think it was Guards. Was it Guards? Yeah. Guards? Or was it this book? I think it was Guards. Uh, which is funny because now, if you think of a current comedic police thing, you think of um, Brooklyn Nine Nine, hmm. <laughs> um, and you know, nature star the sergeant there is like super muscular, handsome, <laughs> father of two kind of thing. Um, <laughs> so yeah, it's very interesting. But of course, that's also American versus British divide, right? So <laughs> yeah, yeah. One thing we've talked about for fan casting is, uh, at least I feel like uh, Peg and Frost could do Colin and, and Nobby pretty well, although Frost, uh, Simon Pegg would have to wear a fair amount of prosthetic. <laughs> or just I, I'm, personally the, I'm personally of the opinion that they shouldn't that they shouldn't actually be played by human beings, but it sh- should instead be Muppets. <laughs> I dig it. Uh, yeah. Uh, we see a lot more veterinary in this book as well. Uh, the Carnivorous flamingo description. I love this. I love this yes. horrible man. This horrible, horrible person. And that that mo- my I think I think my favorite veterinary moment in this one is when he has that interaction with Vimes. Um, you know, asking for Vimes's sword and badge, and Vimes then leaves, and he's like, Veterinary's like, he didn't punch the wall. Perhaps I went too far. Yeah, <laughs> I think it, because I feel the veterinary here is actually very different from the veterinary in like sorcery, for example. Yeah, oh, very yeah. much so. For sure. Character veterinary um, Pratchett evolved through the, the City Watch books. Because mm-hmm. you see him the most in the City Watch books. And I think that that is the picture of veterinary you see. And then later on you see... Oh, veterinary actually does mean well, and he he does a lot of manipulation and scheming and stuff. But like, he actually does want to want things to work, mm-hmm. right? Uh, which is, and you start seeing that in the book. You see him um, a lot in Guards Guards. You don't see him in the other previous books as much. Um, you see him in Sorcery a little bit as this like weird weird character. Um, mm-hmm. But here, you actually I think start seeing veterinary, which again sets up later veterinary for um, for uh, Night Watch and for um, uh, Carpe not Carpe Jugulum, yeah. um, Fifth Elephant I think, mm-hmm. um, and, and all that going stuff, coastal yeah. especially. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. I think like just like going through my internal memory of this, I think legitimately the most characterization before he appears in Guards Guards is a footnote in pyramids. Like you get the there's like there's an extensive footnote in pyramids about how he instituted the guild's rule. And I think mm. that is the definitely the most like uh that's like yeah. the biggest look into his like personality. And like that is the character that he's tried to get to. And I, I think that this is like I think Men at Arms is really sort of the culmination of everything he's been trying to work for towards with Lockmore Pork. Like coalescing and congealing into this horrible wonderful beautiful hilarious sort of depressing and optimistic at the same time mess yeah definitely yeah. like like veterinary is a lot less scorpion pit in this book than he is in the other but like he stops being that scorpion pit after this until we hit moist again so, sort of um, but like yeah I, th- I think you're about the, the picture of the city because here we also see many guild leaders for the first mm-hmm. time right we see um the queen molly we see dr whiteface we see dr dr downey um, Dr. Cruces, you see all of these people and the whole idea of the city works because of the guilds, I think is hammered in here more than even in Guards Guards and stuff. And it's it's actually particularly interesting because we get the 
kind of explanation of how the guild works diegetically as Carrot explains to Angua that this whole system works and like nobody knows why it works, but it works. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, which is a lot more interesting than it just coming from the narration as it has in the past. And I know that's a theme that comes up again and again in the watch books. All about this. A theme of the watch books about the, the like stability of the city. It happens again and again. And I know that guild stuff comes out again. But I think this book, um, like like you were saying, Justin, is a, is a really good um because we see the city in so many ways. We see uh, the walking of the city. We see the smells of the city through the dog and the werewolf. We see the power play of the city. We see the ruling classes, or not really the aristocratic classes debate. Uh, we see the people. We see the ethnic tensions in the city. We see the food thing. We see a lot in Guards, Guards that we only see glimpses of in the other books, I think. Unless I'm misremembering, but yeah. Yeah. And, and the, you know, the... Dr. Chris says his entire plan, right, is to assassinate enough, or to, well, I, I guess it's not technically in, in like more pork terms, assassination, because assassination is illegal. It's different, To, to yeah. kill enough leaders that there's instability and a king will have to emerge. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's all, and, and then there's Edward D. Eve, who kind of gives off a MAGA vibe. yeah. Ugh. Yeah, there's that. There's that. There's that. All like whenever there is the hint of, uh, whenever there is a history of monarchism, there will always be some asshole who says, "You know, things were better when we had a king. Let's go back to that." <laughs> yeah, a king will cure my scrofula. Right, right. Which is funny because you meet scrofula in which book? Um, you meet scrofula, I think, in the Light Fantastic, where oh. instead of death, scrofula appears. Um, one of the alternative uh, four horsemen, four horse people. I don't remember. I think it was like 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 someone's dying. I think Rincewind is dying, but then a death scrofula appears, and, and yes. it's like you're not gonna kill me. You're scrofula, and so right. seeing it again in this book the first time, I was like, oh my god, scrofula, because I had to look up that word. And I was wow, like, wow, that is a right? deep cut. Holy yeah. cow. I remember looking up what the hell is scrofula, and then when I saw it again, I'm like, oh my god, Pratchett really likes scrofula. Um, <laughs> but I, I, I think one of the major themes of this book is um, what is a leader, and how does one lead, and who is a leader, right? Because you see that in, in, in many, you see... Uh, people talk about the chaos, the city versus veterinary leading, right? Uh, you see that in like, no, 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 we need a king. But then you see Carrot talk a lot about like, people shouldn't listen to me because I'm a king. People should listen to me because I'm watchman, not because I'm the king. We see Vimes is um, Vimes wavering between being a leader of this thing and not being a leader anymore. And what does that mean? Can he even let go? Uh, we see the whole theme of killing all the leaders of a society will fall, make it fall into civil unrest, right? So this whole and then, and then the whole idea of people are following, start following Carrot. What are his qualities? Like, or, or even like um, uh, Big Fido. Why is he a leader? What you know? So, so I think who who leads? What is the role and responsibility of a leader, of a king, of a of a tyrant? Right. Um, those are, I think, some of the major themes uh, of this book. It starts with that. With oh uh, carrot and he's a king and ends with that with Vimes being promoted uh, into a leadership uh, another leadership position so yeah uh, as much as as much as um, Aaron you glanced over the kind of dogs subplot in this book <laughs> uh, 
Um, I mean, for good reason. It's w- one of the... Um, it's a little bit hard to explain, I think, in a summary. Um, <laughs> and it's uh, fucking wild. Um, but it... But the the dog subplot and Big Fido is also fascinating because I think that there's this rumination as well on like the kind of cult of charisma or cult of personality because we have Big Fido who is a like tiny lap dog who has this like a poodle, poodle, yeah, a, poodle. a toy poodle, yeah, mm-hmm. a toy poodle who has a dream. This toy poodle has a dream and has managed to form a like vicious gang of dogs of uh, the stray dogs in Ankh-Morpork through like his iron rule um through his iron rule but also going off of Sharong's point a a mythologized image of what it means to be a a wolf right right and and i think that is you know it ties in with carrot and his sort of the kind of cult of personality that follows carrot around as well and angle explores both of them which is interesting mm-hmm. right yeah, yeah so you see you know we we think you know okay it could turn out super well because carrot's a good person and not big vito um but we're seeing the flip side of it as well in you know the that it, in this alternate society in the same city it's played out in a much more horrible way. The the thing at the end where Carrot is bitten or is like, well, I mean, you could run the, city, the the watch and Carrot's like, no, because I know that I could. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is that is that that thing that people, we say, like there's a modern aphorism, right? Like people in, like you want people in power who don't want power, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. That's what makes a good leader because they're not going to do everything to hold on to power. They're going to do everything to be a leader and not necessarily to hold on, right? Um, which, uh, yeah, it, it is interesting. And it also, it was interesting because slight aside, but the whole dog subplot also made me think of uh, Dream of a Thousand Cats, right? Which is uh, one of the shorts in, uh, I think, the third Sandman book. Yeah. Which is yeah. where the cats are dreaming of taking over the world and stuff like that. Um, <laughs> and I know that Pratchett and Gaiman were friends, right? They worked yeah. together and stuff, so. Yeah. On Anna's bit on the dogs just makes me think that, like, in, in, in like, there, there existed, like, the, the world where copyright doesn't exist, a tragic musical about Big Fido... <laughs> oh, rising man. and creating this gang and wow. <laughs> uh, when you're a dog, you're a dog all the way. Cats 2019, but with with Ankh-Morpork Street Dogs. I think interesting, Aaron, because you 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 know we we omitted that in the summary, but I I still think the the dogs thing is is important because that's what that's what I think. Where, that's where we see a lot of Angua's personality, right? And I, I think this is really... I, I, like, I think that Pratchett ha- always has these ridiculous subplots that I, I find really... like. My favorite subplot probably in the books are the Oh God of Hangovers, right? Oh, uh, yeah. Like, which which Justin like, hasn't seen yet, so... Uh... Oh, right. Oh, yeah. That, that's, that's later. Right, right. I printed that gone already, so... Um, but like these like ridiculous subplots that show up in, in many of the books. I can't even think of all of them, but like the, the like I, I thought the dog was interesting because it's used to illuminate um, Angua and possibly like you said, Anna, 
differentiate Carrot and Fido, who Angua is connected to in different mm-hmm. ways, to be like, this is one kind of cult leader and this is another kind of cultish leader. And one of them chooses to step away from cultish leadership, except once in a while when he really needs to. And one who's <laughs> like, ah, I'm going to go crazy. And so much so that he believes he is a wolf and can leap across this roof uh, and then yeah. fails miserably. Yeah. Right? yeah. One of the other big themes I'd like to talk about here is the kind of the role of policing in society and the difference between good policing and bad policing. Because, you know, in um, in 2020, we've talked a lot about um, various media being kind of copaganda and, you know, the problems with modern policing. And I think we're seeing something interesting here in that we're seeing with the with the day watch and the night watch um the night watch are obviously they they are police and they are our protagonists but you've got as antagonists um the day watch led by quirk who are out there you know arresting a troll just because he's a troll and saying well he's got to be guilty of something um and i think that i think that that's really interesting to see and it's something i honestly forgot about as you know terry actually delving into that to some degree at least i mean i think i mean i know one of you were talking about like can uh, like do these uh do the watch books feel too much like propaganda in the modern age and i know one of you were saying about how oh it's a little bit um a product of his times but i do think pratchett um does show elements of what he thinks the role of police yeah. in a community should be like the the for the, the 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 march at the beginning of the dwarves versus the trolls and how the, the the cops the police the night watch go and like peacefully stop that they're like hey we're gonna peacefully stop this uh, or when um the big moment is when vimes goes to the families of of uh, of the dead dwarf and talk, talks to them about hey uh, an important figure in your in your community has died i think that's kind of what we are trying to grapple with right now like what is the role of this kind of entity in our society and and pratchett there has does deal with that a bit he actually has an interesting footnote uh, which he he pokes fun at the idea of the phrase "honest men have nothing to fear from the police." He says that proverb is under review right now, right? Because he says, right, police can be corrupt and bad and stuff. Um, and and I think Pratchett is trying to envision at that time in the early '90s when we didn't have this current language, but what is the role? And like later on, we do see that you know the phrase "Who watches the Watchmen?" made famous by the Watchmen comics, but we see that come up in these books as well, like. What is the role of police? Who watches them? That kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Carrot is almost the avatar of community-based policing because mm-hmm. the way he de-escalates is by knowing people and by by knowing their names and talking to them as equals. And even like criminals, right? Like the unlicensed thief in the beginning, he's like, we'll put him in the cell because otherwise the Thieves Guild will get him. Or like, he's like, oh, foul old Ron stole your armor. Remind me, I'll go talk to him kind of thing. Like this idea of like, about like, like necessity breeds crime for the most part, right? Mm-hmm. Very rarely is it not that, especially with things like thievery. Um, and like, well... We could argue that with white collar crimes, but whatever. Um, but like, and then, and and he exactly uses like, well, I know them, I know their circumstances. Let me go talk to them. Yeah, I I think this is like as somebody who I would say uh, for for you listeners on the podcast, my background tonight is 
just a still from the Law and Order end title cards, executive producer Dick Wolf. Um, I have which a, is a name. Well, um, God, yeah. Um, that that's a choice to make your name as well. Um, like to to say, I wish for you to call me this. Uh, but I I have a we'll say a very long and intense uh, relationship with police procedurals and mysteries. Um, like I've I've been watching them for. Mo- more ye- more years of my life than I haven't, um, and <laughs> we're we're not going to go into how young I was into murder mysteries because that might get some people uh, that might get some people worried. Um, I think we've actually but, already um, had that discussion on this podcast. I think so. We haven't gotten into how early we got into when I started writing my own. Um, <laughs> but uh, but anyways, uh, I think that like there are like I think we see what Terry. Uh, this this is, I think, a very political book from Terry. I think it might be the most political we've read from him yet. And we see a lot of what he thinks of the world and what its problems are. And I think it's like, for, for 1993, this is a pretty breathtaking view for, like, this is what policing should be. I think that there there's some stuff of, like, I think it's done in the name of comedy, where, like, even the, the good cops of the Night Watch are... Um, I, I, that's more, this is more knobs and colon territory, but it's like where the job is still to like, you know, land in an extra kick. Um, but I, I think like overall, like, I think that there's what Terry Pratchett like supposes is what would be the first step to reforming or creating a good organization that is a, is a community a civil defense and helps keep the peace. I think that's relatively like that's a, it's a good idea for what it is. Um, I, it's, I imagine that like, I think if this was released now, this might get called a little bit too hopeful or not radical enough, or maybe a pipe dream. I think it's something for like an established comedic series and satire. I think it's a pretty good, Thing. And like going over it all, I, I was like, "Does this maybe count as propaganda?" And I, I'm like, "I think it's a. I think the answer to that is it's complicated." Yeah, <laughs> I think you could. I think you could. Like, I think there are people who maybe have the like who have the view of like any view which tries to put like any media that tries to uh, portray police officers in a positive light will end up becoming propaganda without its without even being the intention of that um i don't like i don't subscribe to that i think like it's complicated as an answer and you should and like this is a book that i would probably recommend listeners if you haven't read this book it's a it's a very interesting book for 1983 on how it views police. I mean, it's it's a you say the fact that saying it's complicated. I think that's because the issue of police is complicated. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right? Um, yeah. At least I don't view it as simple uh, right or wrong in terms of cop. I think that's it, it's complicated. And I think another that issue actually comes up as well in this in where 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 Pratchett actually does bring up this idea of ethnic communities policing themselves, right, with the dwarves and things, and the idea of we must have a diverse civil service. We must have a diverse police force to understand and interact with a diverse city, which also is really cool. And I, and and it's interesting because um, 
at the start, you see comments and things that I'm, I'm like, oh, that's a bit odd. But later on, I'm like, oh, Pratt was actually using that to show that those are not good comments. Yeah. And later yeah. on, characters like fall in, like not fall in line is a weird way of saying it, but they realize, oh, those are not good comments and things. Yeah, like um, yeah. like we've already talked about how Vimes evolves a ton from... Um, certainly he's evolved from the Vimes he was in Guards to here. And this is just the tip of the iceberg. Right, yeah. He he changes a lot over the books, right? Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. he becomes smarter in certain aspects. He, he learns, he, yeah. And, uh, yeah, you start seeing this a lot here. Interestingly, I, on the, other, on the opposite side, I didn't like Ramkin, Lady Sybil, uh, as much in this book because I'm remembering her being really, really supportive of him in all yeah. the other books. And in this book, it's like he clearly doesn't want to leave his job. And, and she's like, oh, you'll meet the right sort of people. You'll join this sanctuary. And I'm like, you know that he doesn't like this. You can tell he doesn't like this. Why are you forcing this on him? And I was a bit like, Lady Ramkin, yeah. what are you doing? Because in the well, later books, you see she's so supportive, right? Right. I I think it's it's interesting because at least my rationalization for that is that I don't I don't think that the Vimes who we see at the start of Men in Arms is a happy man or a man who's happy with his job. Um, you know, he is underpaid at a grueling job where he has no support and veterinary breathing down his neck. Um, and, like, he doesn't want to quit, but he doesn't want to do it anymore. At least the way that it is there. So he's stuck in this sort of like stagnant misery. Um, and I, at least my rationalization is that she's trying to help in the way that she can, which is basically say like, okay, you know, Sam, you are, you know, a passionate man who has, you know, passion about the causes of your work. So let's see if we can refocus that and find you something that you'll actually be interested in. Um, but I don't think that she's taking quite the right, right tack, but I don't, I think that it's, I think that it's complicated. I think that there is, other than the outcome that we have, the watch being revamped entirely, etc. Um, I'm not sure there are any. I'm not sure that there are any good options for Vimes because I think that if he, if he had continued, you know, in the same role, he would have just continued to be miserable as well. And I think that's actually really interesting. Point. I didn't think of this. Um, guards, guards is not as much a police mystery, right, as Men at Arms. Men at Arms and Feet of Clay are mysteries, and I feel I, I like that really, that point, Anna. That it takes this like mystery for. Vimes to actually be like, hey, maybe I enjoy this and maybe this is what I should do and maybe I'm good at this kind of thing. Like, he doesn't like his job until he's confronted with this, like, mystery who which has this moral thing for him. Someone's being murdered. He doesn't... He, that's not a good thing, right? That's actually really interesting. I never thought of that. Um, like, men on this where what makes Vimes like his job. Right. Um, it refocuses him. It refocuses the purpose of the watch. Like, Sybil can see that something is wrong. But I think that putting her finger on that, she misses the mark. Also, another thing I didn't like about her, but I, I see a point, is that how she like bequeathed her whole estates to him. That was weird. That was weird. And then the 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 vampire lawyer was like, "Oh, she's a very traditional lady," and I'm like, 
Yeah. I like, I get it, I guess. And, and, and I like the scene with the vampire lawyer. Yeah, 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 it, yeah, yeah. It just felt like a little bit like. Why are you doing this, Sybil? Yeah, and, and, and like, I, and, and this is one of those things where it's just like, I even question it from like a meta narrative standpoint. I, I, I guess I get it is like, okay, we like, really, this is to put as much stress on vibes as possible. And, like, you know, throw this whole life change thing into even more... Focus, uh, yeah. Sharper, yeah. And, but yeah, it still felt like a weird thing coming from Sybil, who... And from what we remember from her of guards is, you know... doesn't That doesn't really feel right, but I... I would say that she is probably a tertiary character in this book. And with Discworld stuff, I'm willing to let, like occasionally like little character stuff flip through there because like this is this is just to emphasize a plot point here and also there like i i you know as a writer i'm like writers are human this is a bajillion book series (laughs) right (laughs) like things shift characters shift you become like i have i have done like as when i when as an actor i have done shows in one night where the same part becomes different by the third show because i'm i've felt into the character more so so i I, yeah i do like forgive that from a human perspective like yeah we're not gonna expect perfect continuity and and i love how terry pratchett um explains continuity errors where he says oh it's just different possible worlds or something right it's funny Mm -hmm. because uh the word in word of god he actually explained things with both a watsonian and a doyalist point of view because he's like well you know Vetinari could be it could be an alternate reality version of Vetinari, or it could be a Vetinari who was written by a much stupider author. <laughs> um, which I believe is a direct quote. Which you know, it's that that's that's something I appreciate. The patriarchal nature of that scene with the lawyer um, is is what what sort of rankles us, but the i think what is there to do is is specifically to show how deeply uncomfortable vimes is with having money of any sort uh cuz he's been so poor for so long uh that and i think that really sets up the that dinner party as well you know where he's realizing that the divide isn't between various species in Ankh-Morpork, it's the a divide between the people with wealth and the people without wealth since we're reading Men at Arms and we're bringing up money in class, does anybody want to read the quote? <laughs> or do we just want to put it in the show notes? The Boots Theory. The Boots Theory. <laughs> That's like one of the most famous Discworld ideas. Yeah. I th- oh, yeah. yeah. I, it's, I think I, it's been I, quoted in actual yeah, econ textbooks. It's a, it you, you knew about the Boots Theory before you even touched the first page of Color of Magic. From from the Discworld outsider looking at, so you know, I'm I'm 30 now. I was exposed to the boots theory in high school. Mm, 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 <laughs> like mm. like like that that was one of those uh, that was one of those things of just like God, it must have been like a Facebook post or something. <laughs> but it was just like yeah, that, I'm like I'm I've known about a thing like you know you know that I've 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 known about that like long before I even knew where it was from. And and that 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 I know he takes that humor because I think in the next I think it's in Feet of Clay where he swaps boots out with someone because his are too good, right? Yep. 
And he um, can't feel the cobbles. He can't feel the cobbles. So that he takes that further. But yeah, that idea. I've seen that randomly on like Tumblr and things. People like, oh, look at this like great like economic or sociopolitical idea. Yeah. But it's it's entirely true. It is actually more expensive to be poor. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, and, and I know that that part of the book is about satirizing like capitalism, right? And like the idea of the beggar's guild, right? Is a satire of like, yeah, we need a guild for, for begging. Please, sir, could you spare a, a half million dollars for a small mansion? Yeah, yeah, exactly. The queen <laughs> is like, yeah. Or like, or like, oh, can you fetch some string? Yeah, it'll take some time because we have to go beg for it, right? Like they acquire all their assets. Like, and this idea of that. And so I think... Pratchett is it is really interesting him making these economic Or the or the Thieves Guild, which is just insurance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And hyper politicizing. Brought to us by Two Flower. <laughs> In sewer ants. I mean there there there's like beyond the boot theory, there was actually it, it, it comes a, a slight bit later in the book, but this I think is a, possibly an even more um I think this might even be like a more focused uh, view of that, like the same ideology that is running through the book, which is it's a thought from Vimes while meeting some of the rich. Owning a hundred slum properties wasn't a crime, although living in one was almost. Being an assassin, the guild never actually said so, but an important qualification was being the son or daughter of a gentleman wasn't a crime. If you had enough money, you could hardly commit crimes at all. You just perpetrated amusing little peccadilloes. Yeah. And we are actively seeing that now in the highest echelons of power in the United States, right? Yep. Yeah, that's such a good quote. Yeah. Um there's 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 a lot of there's a lot of parts of this where there is there there's a definite righteous fury. And some of the writing stuff, which is yeah. something that we've seen before, but definitely and I think starts popping up. I think this is the first book where we kind of see. So after Sir Terry's death, um, Neil Gaiman wrote quite a bit about him. And one of the things that he wrote was that um, Terry was a very angry man in many ways. And I think this is the one of the books where that starts to come out that... You know, he's not angry at his readers, etc. But he's there's this anger at society and injustice that comes out um, through the text of the book. And I think I see that a lot in Jingo as well um, about the rich. Like there's a, a lot of antagonism between Vimes and the other. He calls someone what an inborn streak of piss at one point, if I remember. <laughs> um, that whole rich versus not rich divide comes in again, again in Night Watch when there's a lot about the prostitute, the sex workers of the city. Oh, yeah. uh, the whole like don't, yeah, don't, don't spoil, spoil that. that. I so- yeah, I won't. So- I won't spoil that. <laughs> but like, there's a lot of exploration he does. Um, about um, social class, which I think is uh, is, and, and it's mainly honestly in the like like I don't think in the truth uh, we see that even though we're set in Angkor Pork, it's about a rich person, but we don't see that class divide. Even in the making money, raising taxes, all those you don't see that as much. It's in the guards' books through Vimes, who comes from poverty and moves into some of the highest um, wealth in the city. Uh, it's through Vimes that we explore this like stuff about classism a lot, um, which I think is interesting. 
are there other tropes that sort of either tangential to police or or other important things that you wanted to call out that that terry touches on in in the book i want to talk about guns yeah i was just gonna say the guns and and firearms yeah Yeah. Yeah. because this is such a fascinating take on you know guns don't kill people people kill people which here it's sort of both that that there's this um malevolence to the gun um and it's it's described almost like a ha- like a almost like the you know talking magic swords or something like that that it has this like evil sentience it it feels like uh it felt to me like one of the um uh, grand ideas like moving pictures that mm-hmm. hover outside the universe and then intrude like it have exactly the like possess like um dr crucis didn't want to do all that but then he got like you know, the gun kind of, like, seduced him. And I, I realize there's a metaphor of this idea that, like, having a gun is, especially, like, practice writing this in Britain, where gun stuff is less incisive versus America, where gun stuff is very incisive, right? Yeah. So yeah. as someone who lives in America and spent a lot of my formative uh, education years in America, it is very interesting to me um, to be like, yeah, this, this argument, like even having a gun in your home is not okay because it, it, it itself is this malevolent force. We're introduced with the idea of what it is by meeting Leonard de Quirm. <laughs> Which is a cursed name that I really wish an editor had said no to. Uh, but it, it's presented as like one of those things, like like you said in moving pictures, like Leonard says that it's like, I didn't even really come up with the idea. It was just more like it was always going to happen. Mm. And I just, and I was just the outlet for it. Yeah. Um, Mm He's, he's the same victim of the sleet of inspiration that, uh, that uh, what's his name? The, the dwarf uh, playwright. Yeah. Quill. Yeah. Quill. The the way it writes is just like, I've been reading an essayist on um, Grant Morrison and, how they were influenced by uh, their parents' uh, work on anti-nuclear weapons, and it, it just there, there's stuff that's that resonates with that of just like the various pacifism and just like there, there have only really been two instruments in world history and human evolution that have been made solely to kill things, and that is the sword and the gun. And the sword, the sword is personal, and you have to get up close. But the gun is the industrialized method by which we kill people. And it's it's interesting too because you know the disc world. It's not like the gun is the first projectile weapon. Like there are crossbows and very deadly crossbows and very fancy deadly crossbows that fire very rapidly. Burley and Stronging Therm's famous crossbows, <laughs> and also siege crossbows. Yeah, but but there's this there's this evil magic to the gun that goes even past that, which I find I find yeah. fascinating. Right, because within the fiction, you could argue, well, it's a six-barrel, a six-bulleted gun. You can argue that some of the crossbows are equally deadly, yeah. and, right? The high yeah. rate, right? But 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 Pratchett imbues the gun with more danger and more malevolence, too. And it's very, 
I mean, it's not subtle, like, to make a point, right? Oh, yeah. That the oh, gun yeah. is not a good thing. Because you can argue that, because there were literally moments in the book where, like, oh, the crossbow bolt, like, yeah, that's literally the same as the gun in, in a way, right? But but uh, it's not, especially, and to Pratchett, he uses this, and, and talk about, like, we, like to talk about, like, modern, like, firearm, like, we shouldn't have access to these, and, and people, because, Yeah. I mean, even in even in the description of the crossbows in the there there's a there's the scene where it's it's Death or Cruces takes a shot at Vimes, and Vimes goes through the it's it's a fantastically written scene just because it's it's a cool action scene and we don't usually get to see Terry write those like intense but we get sort of like a time dilated description of this because of Vimes' stress, where he goes through the entire process of how you load a crossbow Mm -mm. and, like, the actual physical exertion you have to do to that Mm -mm. compared to this dude who is just popping off six shots. Mm -mm. And it's it's a very interesting contrast. And I I think it's it's one of my favorite, like, I don't think Discworld is a particularly good, like, series for, like, portraying action sequences. But that, that, like, moment of tension of the thriller aspect there really hits and like emphasizes just how dangerous this thing is and how malevolent and awful it is. I think there's a bunch of action set pieces that work really well in this particular yeah. book. Probably because of the gun and because of what he's, what he, what media he's pulling out of, you know, like the, the scene with the patrician pulling up to the wedding, I think is another Really well written scene. Yeah. yeah. Where Kara just like drops everything and rushes. I mean, mm-hmm. I think, and just I think you'll find that as you progress the series, action scenes get better because he has a lot more, especially in all the watch ones, right? Like mm-hmm. Vimes does a ton of swashbuckling things. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I really like how he like intercuts a lot at the end of this book between the scenes to, for, to like there's. I don't even remember where it was, but there's one intercut where it is literally one line. Like, there's stuff going on, and then it intercuts to one line that Angua just, like, says, and then it cuts back. And I, I really like how he maintains tension uh, at the, in the end by cutting back and forth um, between, like, what's happening with the gun, what's happening uh, with the dogs, what's happening, you know, blah, blah, blah. It, it's really... Um, uh, I think it's really well done. Small point of clarification here. What type of gun is the gun? It's it's a six shooter it, rifle, which um, is wild. It, yeah, it is not. It, it is not a gun that like you would be, you would see here because the idea of it is that like it is a it is a rifle, but it would there's there's probably a breach between where uh, like yeah so, yeah yeah so that like yeah you load that like. You load the like the the flute of bolt of like pre-made bullets, and it basically it's like a musket where it's like everything is shot powder, and you just shoot it, tap one over, shoot it, tap one over. Interesting. And it's just like this weird like piccolo flute thing. It's a weird design, and I, I it's like a weird it's a very design. It, it's a very discworld thing. Yeah, like and, and sort of also. Very, you know, Leonardo da Vinci. Yeah, yeah. I, I felt it. a very da Vinci-esque thing to it because, you know. And I also kind of liked that it wasn't just like, oh, it looks like a revolver. Because that it's a, this is a fantasy book. It's kind of like, 
Just like, you know, the movies aren't exactly the same, right? Similarly, the gun isn't yeah. exactly the same. Plus, it's, mm-hmm. plus it's got to be a rifle rather than a revolver just for the, the accuracy from, like, a shot from the Tower right. of Art. Right, right, right. Which, you know, I feel like I feel like it's interesting. Might be stretching the limits of this particular firearm, but, you know. Well, I, this, is, this is one of the things where I feel like the malevolent sentience of the gun comes in because there's this sense mm. that the gun is aiming itself. Yeah, with, especially when the crossbow maker gets killed, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that weird conversation that Dr. Cruces has, like, oh, he said, Edward said it, it, it almost had a mind of its own or whatever. It's like a weird horror almost. I remember when I read it, I was, I, 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 I every single Discworld book I have read in two days, right? Because I always raced through them, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember reading this late at night and it was almost like scary when, when you have the scenes with the with Edward and the gun or Dr. Crucis and the gun. And it and talks like, to the Vimes. The, yeah, the way the gun talks to you is, was a little unsaid. Like this one, this book and Lords and, no, no, no. And uh, Lords and Ladies, right? Where the elves come. Um, yeah, we, we just, just, we did, just that did that one, that one last month. Yeah, last those month. are the two which I felt like like scary moments. Like there are scary moments in this book, They're like horror almost. Yeah, I we um, I think we talked about during Lords and Ladies that like I want I want to hop over to the alternate timeline where Terry Pratchett like wrote stuff other than Discworld, and like I want to visit the timeline where he tried tried to write horror. Um, yeah, because it is. It is. It is like the, the whole bit about elves are are fantastic. They bring fantasy. Elves are terrific. They bring terror. I remember reading that first. I'm like, yeah, oh. that's yeah. that that particular phrase just gives chills. Revisiting this book, I am re-enchanted by how skillful Pratchett is in his writing. Right? Like there are a couple of things like we said we didn't like. Like for example, one thing I think that didn't fit super well anymore. Even though you can argue that it's, it's Colin's perspective is the whole thing about like, oh, we have to like beat the armor to fit Angua in, or like, oh, Colin's like, oh, Angua's bad at archery because you know her. Uh, I don't know, gets in the way, you know. And I'm like, that nah, that seems a bit silly because you have boobs, you can't shoot arrows, and you can you can say, okay, that's just Colin's perspective and whatever. Um, so there's small minor things that I like, mm, but on the whole, Terry Pratt is a very I, I'm re-enchanted by what a skilled writer he is. And this is really <laughs> we're getting into the zone where the writing has finally clicked and. I mean, that's only really happened recently. Yeah. The, the first like ten books. Um, oh, oh yeah, of, yeah, yeah. Are of inconsistent quality. We'll say. Like exactly. Like I think looking at the first few, like I think uh, Weird Sisters was very good. Pyramids was weird. You know, like there are some that are weird, some that are great. There are parts of sorcery that I love. Equal rights, I was kind of bored by. Um, but it's like here where we get to the books and it's like, okay, yeah, that slaps, right? And speaking of, of just the the pure distilled Terry writing that comes out, another one that stuck in my memory ever since the first time I read this one was uh, Vimes' meditation on the difference between evil men and good men. Yes. Um, I have, that's a good point. I've, I've kept that in my head a lot like, like evil men will gloat and good men will just kill you. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. Something Vimes had learned as a young guard drifted up from memory. You have to look along the shaft of an arrow from the wrong end. If a man has you entirely at his mercy, then hope like hell that man is an evil man. Because the evil like power, 
power over people. And they want to see you in fear. They want you to know you're going to die. So they'll talk. They'll gloat. They'll watch you squirm. They'll put off the moment of murder like a man puts off a good cigar. So hope like hell your captor is an evil man. A good man will kill you with hardly a word. And we see that in action with Cruces versus Carrot. I have a follow-up question. Is Vimes a good man? I think Vimes tries to be good, which is more important. Yeah. There's a there's a I think a, a whole section in one of the later books where he's like, Am I a good man? I'm trying to be a good man. Um yeah, I, I, I think I think so, because you see it even in this book, you see his internal his internal thoughts a bit. And he's like, I don't we, what is the point of being a policeman if I can't save people? Right. Um, is when when he gets drunk and all that stuff, he says things like that. And so I think fundamentally, uh, Vimes is a good man who sometimes uh, does slightly unsavory things for the for the greater good. Uh, is what I think. And I think honestly, most of most of um uh, Pratchett's characters are like that. I think the important part of like Vimes is like is that he constantly is questioning himself. Um, he he is a person who is very not self assured. Well, it's it's interesting because I feel like I feel like Vimes is a good man, but he's constantly questioning it. So we get to we get to scenes where Carrot is sometimes far more likely to take rapid action than Vimes is because he has this kind of force of conviction behind him. Um, And Vimes sometimes overthinks himself. Like he kind of does that a bit in the fight against Cruces. Like I think that there's a point where he could have, you know, taken the shot um, and taken out Cruces and he doesn't. Um, And and I think also, I can't remember if it was established previously, but in this book, it's firmly established that it's believed that Vimes is permanently canard. Oh, really? Did that did say that in this book? Yeah, yeah. Oh, I don't remember that. They he they they say that he needs at least two drinks to be sober. <laughs> I thought that was just because they 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 got the wrong type of clatchy and coffee. No, that was that's he's he's constantly the reason that he drinks so so often is because he's just constantly being ground at by the sandpaper of reality. I know we've already talked about Big Fido and the dog subplot, um, but I really liked the musing on the dogs versus wolves, and it's it's very... It felt like the witches to me, honestly, um, in terms of the kind of nature of the musing that you know dogs are what you get when you take a wolf and make it human and there's this this thing of like not quite belonging in either universe um and this of course fits in really well with with big vito's cult of personality and um his kind of idealized um vision of what it's like to be a wolf but i i found all of those musings really interesting which is extra interesting because um there's a quote uh, at the start of the book where 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 we meet edward it's on page 11 i remember this i'll just find it in the book um where we meet edward early on edward death and uh, there's a bit where um 
Individuals aren't naturally paid-up members of the human race, except biologically. They need to be bounced around by the Brownian motion of society, which is a mechanism by which human beings constantly remind one another that they are, well, human beings. Well, that's interesting, because in the beginning, there's the idea of, like, people need each other to be human, and then the but contrast with the wolves, where Angua even says uh, wolves don't need to be told to do something as a pack. They just do it as a pack, right? Yeah. Because, like, you need to run society to become real people and stuff, but at the end, wolves don't, right? They have this instinctual. So it's like this idea of wildness and society, and it, it's interesting because they're both present in this book. And I know in in uh, Carpe Jugulum, you explore that a lot with the werewolves. And... It, it, felt, it felt very witches to me, that it it feels like the sort of musing that Granny Weatherwax would have. So it was interesting to see that in in a different lens. Yeah, I can see that, especially with well, you haven't you guys haven't reached witches abroad, right? Yeah, we did. Okay, yeah. So the whole thing with her sister, um, and and the whole thing of like Mad, who is the the witch who went bad, and Granny's terrified of turning into her. Um, Black Alice. Black Alice, yeah. yeah. The whole thing yeah. of like, like she, and like the whole idea of, you're right, because the witches like often live alone, away from society, and uh, yeah, yeah, and turning evil. That's an interesting point, yeah. Which is one Which, of my, one of my like big favorite. Yeah, I love that. I, I love them like traveling around. Um, it's yeah. also very interesting because like, you can see, like, I found certain books in the, in the series have a suddenly a really different tone from all the others, right? Mm-hmm. Which the broad feels a little bit like that to me. But more importantly, I think Carpe Jugulum feels like that to me. Eric feels like that to me, which are like, <laughs> well, you're in a different mood when writing this because like yeah. Carpe Jugulum is, is very different, I felt, for example. Yeah, Eric almost feels like he was writing Rincewind fanfic. Yeah, not my favorite. Um, Reaper Man has a little bit of difference in the death moments. The, 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 the like melancholy parts of Reaper Man are much sadder than most of the other books. Oh, yeah. Speaking of death, Justin, did you notice all of the da- death dad jokes? Oh, my God. <laughs> so so I have one specifically. I have one specifically. Wait, is, um, it, is it the one I'm, I, I hope it's the one I'm thinking of? Um, so, um, so the dwarf, it's the dwarf who dies yes. and he says, I believe in reincarnation. I know. I tried to live a good life. Does that help? That is not up to me. Of course, since you believe in reincarnation, you'll be Bjorn again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I was just like, I like, I stood up and I was just like, I walked around my living room and I was like, Terry. Yeah, I, I love that. That's a character continuity straight from Mort, right? Yeah, yeah. Because in Mort, he's like, "I'll oh, be funny," but there are definitely puns. And like, there's a bit where it's like higher than like a bakery on the hills or something. There's a there's a weird, very weird pun. It rises higher than a bakery in the hills, or like there there are certain word plays that Pratchett yeah. does, and I'm yeah. like, really, I'm groaning. Well, and there there was one there's one that I feel like is a really one where I feel like I'm like not getting it quite, um, which is at the end, veterinary makes a pun um, where, you know, Carrot has been talking the entire book about how a policeman is a man of the city, right? And veterinary is like, well, what do you think a politician is? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. I, is the pun that it's like a tick of the city? 
Oh, I, so I thought I interpreted that as as a, a lot of people talk about veterinary as the tyrant, but if the police serves the city, him as a politician also serves the city, or. Him saying, "Carrot, you are actually a politician." Did you see what you just did there? I take it、mm-hmm. as one of those、yeah. two things. Yeah, because yeah. yeah, like the the actual like the word poli the 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 word polité,、uh, because I I looked that up after reading your note.、Uh, like in, in Greek, it means the affairs of the state,、um, and so a politician, I guess, like. Loosely, I apologize to our any classics listeners we have, any any people who are in the classics. But I, I interpret that as like somebody who is involved with the affairs of the state. So I think like yeah, it's like that. No, you are one too. Yeah, yeah especially yeah. after like, that scene, right? That scene where carrot, like where, I'm like, whoa, carrot. Yeah, where carrot and literally nobody else gets one over on Vietnam. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah.、Uh, but but it also it also. It、has this aspect of a pun to it though, because carrot is you know policeman, city man, and you know veterinary is the you know politician, city tick. I think veterinary and carrot are two characters that whose、um, path Pratchett did not envision early on. Yeah, I think they、yeah. both change a lot, and and I don't think I don't think Pratchett. Saw how beloved Carrot would become、um, as a character, and how interesting Veterinary also kind of becomes later on.、Um, like I was sad, for example, I was sad when you don't see a lot of Carrot in some of the later Watch books, right? Like in Night Watch, you don't see Carrot as much. I was like, Carrot, I want you, I want you, you know? Yeah. So one of my favorite parts of this book, because I'm just gonna bounce around a little bit. There's that scene that starts with. Them going over like carrot recited like carrot reciting the law. They're like they're having to go through the things of like okay, can we make sure that we have the law on our side to form this? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, he's that entire the book. that entire bit where like they they start by creating this militia like up through the point where they bust into the fools guild. Like there's just this chaotic energy throughout that. It's so good. It's so funny just because of like and like. The the point where he's like, "Do you have an appointment?" Well, we've got this thing with six. We got this like big ball with six points on it. No, that's a morning star. <laughs> like, there's like this, like, like that's this another example like, of a pun,、it. right? Because Nobby、yeah. Pratchett has that thing of like, this is a joke he uses in every book where a word that sounds like another word. No, you're thinking of a thing, right? So Nobby's like appointment. I have a pointy stick, right?、He's、like, no, no, that's、mm-hmm. not an appointment, right? Yeah,、um, yeah. And that scene also then leads into the distillation of carrot as cop, where he just lay, lays out things. And lets the other person talk. Gosh, yeah. And fill in the gaps that he doesn't know. Yeah, like I、and、will never, have to never, carry out my orders. I will never f- lies, never manipulates. I mean, lies by omission. But and and I think it's actually kind of. I feel and this. I don't know if this is true, but that 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 side of cat actually comes out after he had sex with Angua, right? <laughs> Because before that, there are moments where he's like he is a sharp person, but he, he before the first half of the book is still a bit like you know that that scene where he's like I comma square bracket insert name here square bracket comma right <laughs> yeah, that, that carrot is- feels different 
from carrot being like, I will carry out my orders that I was given before I arrived here. Like, or the carrot that talks to um that talks to Vetinari at the end, right? And it's interesting, like, like carrot has sex and now this happens. Actually, let's talk about that for a second, because thinking through 41 novels, I think this might be the only sex scene. Yeah, there are mentions, there are mentions of um, se- uh, sexy stuff with Magrat and the king at times when mm. he like orders a book that he thinks is marital arts, but instead yes. orders martial arts. <laughs> yeah. Um, God, yeah, that's so right. <laughs> and then uh, there are cup. There, there's the there's the the seamstress has come back a lot. There, no there are a number that. of references to sex, but I think right. this is the only sex scene even in even in night watch is there not a sex scene i don't think so okay yeah this is i but i it was significant for me because i was young i was like 13 when i read this and it's also significant uh, in that my parents did not give me the talk until i was like 16 years old my goodness which is a very late age right uh, and so I remember, but I, you know, I was a reasonably bright kid, right? And like, I was also an advanced biology student. Um, and had access to books. Yeah, I had access to books and the internet, even though it was in the UAE. So a lot of the internet was blocked. Like you couldn't, like it was literally blocked. You couldn't find a lot of things because the, the UAE government would block it. But you know, I had access to stuff. And so I remember reading my arms and being fascinated by this very veiled sex scene, right? It's not titillating in Anyway, right? They say the Discworld moved and like they w- mentioned the word mechanics, right? Um, but I remember being uh, th- being really intrigued. I remember one of my friends was over and I was like, ooh, read this bit, read this bit, ooh, you know? Even though it's ridiculously tame, right? It's ridiculously yeah. tame. Um, and, and, K- and Carrot runs out after her, you know, sword in hand, but nothing else. Right. And I remember being like, ooh. Uh, that was also me, you know, baby gay, right? Being like, ooh. Um, so like this, even though it isn't explicit or or whatever, it 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 was a formative moment. Like I said, this romance and this sex scene were very formative for me and being like, oh. And then I remember in in a later book they joke about the song keys, right, or like the condoms. And I remember asking my mom like, what the hell's a song? I don't I don't get this. Uh, because I was like what fourteen or something. Uh, <laughs> and I, again, we had no sex education in the UAE for students, and my parents didn't talk to me until I was sixteen. And my mom pointedly said, I have no idea, right? She's like, I don't know. Even though she clearly obviously she knew, right? Um, like what a rubber sonky, like what the, I don't get what this is. And I I did digging and I'm like, oh, it's a condom. Oh, I get it. Um so like Sex and Terry Pratchett are like like it was interesting to me like it it was like formative to me. So. And then there's Nanny Og. And there's Nanny Og, right? Right. And and, and the cat and her cat and her cat Grebo. Oh God, oh. Grebo. Well, right. Let, let's just go with there's Nanny Og and Casanunda. Yes. Who's fantastic, and I love him so much. Um, is there stuff about that? In, is there stuff about sexuality in moving pictures? Not really, right? Yeah, there's a, there's a lot of references to sex. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there are there, there are tons of it, and I love I actually like the positive depiction of the seamstresses, right? Even here, right? Like it's like well, like you know, they're seamstresses. Ooh. They're trying to get the 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 street that they're street rename, uh, yeah, on. from the whore pit. She- Right to the 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 what is it the streets the, of negotiable, street negotiable affection. Right, yeah. That that I remember that was also like a moment for me where I was like, oh, 
huh. Like that was a, that men at arms. I was very young when I read it. Like I was 12, 13 and I, I reading the romance men at arms was very formative to me. I was like mm-hmm. sex in books. Interesting. Well, I think this is one of the good things about carrot too. And where, you know, the degree to which carrot is a lens on the world helps shape our view on the world because one might expect carrot to be uh shocked by the nature of the seamstresses certainly in guards he is confused because they are called seamstresses and right. he doesn't understand he, yeah he like completely oblivious in guards guards right right like that he's oblivious he takes, he takes up residence in the mrs palms but he oh, he does oh i don't remember that okay yeah, yeah but he he doesn't judge at all um, like that he's, he's not, he's not sex neg- negative, et cetera, despite, you know, his archetype of character maybe sometimes being expected to be. Right, right. And it's also inverted in the scene that get, messes me up every time I read it, where, where they're getting him into, uh, getting Vimes into bed and trying to, to, you know, get him out of his basically, you know, alcohol coma, and and Angua finds a box with uh, women's names and money written down, and she makes a you know a sort of hard a bitter joke about well they must not have been you know very good and the, two, the, two the pennies or something two dollars yeah yeah, yeah yeah and the the temperature of the room drops you know yeah. as they're like oh well no he's not having sex with them he's he's supporting you know, widows and orphans. I also really like that because you actually see in this book, it's not, it doesn't have the trope of like, oh, amazing, perfect romance. Like in the beginning, uh, Carrot is like, I don't like undead. I, I don't like them, right? And then he comes around to that and, and you see Angua at that moment, like, oh my God, what is Vimes doing? And Carrot's like, nope, that's not the case, right? So you see this tension between them as well, uh, which I like. It makes the romance mm-hmm. more real. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a bunch of scenes in this that that are just burned into my memory. Yeah, I feel like this is one of those things where we could probably like we could probably go scene by scene of like, oh, I love this, I love this, I love this. Yeah, no, my my notes for this that I'm not referring to are like four pages long. Uh- <laughs> yeah, Man Arms like is one of my my favorite Discworld books, and I, I say my favorite Discworld books. Most of them are watch books. It's like Man Arms, Fifth Elephant, you know. Yeah, I. Um, in like a couple chat groups of men of like various nerds, um, like I, I will, I was like, I was like, I just tested their day. I'm like, oh hey, I finished Men at Arms, and you know, immediately there, there that that sparks like a 45 minute thing on like Discworld, and just I, I think, I think overwhelmingly, it, it's it's what it's the one I see the most that is like. People like that's my desk world. That's or that that's the thing I gravitate towards. And like Men Arms is uh, at some level about diversity. That is the, the the like I thought leadership is one thing, but diversity is another theme of Men Arms, which is so huge. So many people like think about that. One thing which I thought was interesting, which I was always sad, like you see Pratchett touch on like trans issues a little bit in some of the books, especially with the dwarves and their gender norms and things. Um, yeah. But you don't actually see Pratchett have any many explicitly like gay characters. I feel like it's something that he gets on with like romance. I think it was something that maybe he just didn't feel, I, just because it's like there's some stuff with like romance early on that it's like he tries it then very hard veers away mm-hmm. and like subverts it in a couple books. And I think it might be a thing that he 
maybe just didn't feel comfortable like like didn't like think he he's like I don't think I can write this. Yeah, story. I wasn't gonna say he I wasn't gonna say he's homophobic or anything. I was trying to no, say no, I was no, 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 I was no. sad I, I, because he touched on so many other social issues yeah. and teas. I was like, Oh, I wish I had I'd seen that. That would have been really nice. There are some characters introduced in some of the later books. Um I believe Unseen Academicals and um, Monstrous Regiment. Monstrous Regiment, maybe? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I think he he is starting, he, he starts to ease into it a little bit closer to the, closer to the end of his life. But yeah. I think, you know, certainly in 93, I don't think that he was probably comfortable. Yes. And and also to his to his credit there are at least a few antagonists that if been if they'd gotten a good nudge could very well have been queer coded and they didn't which is a relief yeah 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 and cuz like feet of clay and fifth elephant have a lot of stuff about gender right like there's a lot of discussion mm-hmm. about gender uh, which i think is really cool um i mean the one thing i liked about that clip i told you from the city watch TV show, which I don't really want to watch anymore, is the bit where they're like, yeah, that's her. And then, and then I think that's Carrot, though I wasn't sure. Because, like, why is he new? He's like, who's her? They're like, I'm her. You know, like, this, like, whole gender thing, which I thought was cool. And there's there's a lot of different takes on Cherry, which we'll talk about when we get to that yeah, book. Yeah, let's hold that for, but yeah, for that book. That's that's a talk for the future. There, There's, there's a line that I want to bring up that I, I think a very poignant, uh, like, it, it really, like, it immediately caught my eye, but maybe like in a good way, but also a bad way. But uh, like Terry has a footnote that this is the twice, this is the second time we've seen it now that humans of the disc have uh, surpassed racism because speciesism is more prevalent. I don't know if they've surpassed it so much as just haven't gotten around to it. Yeah. Or, or they, they've just, they've just ignored it for the time being. Um, which is a, I like, it's a thing of like, okay, that's, it, I can see how a 90s writer would say like, yeah, that's how I'm going to deal with it just because I don't want to. Yeah, I'm going to deal with it through this metaphor of species instead of through actually depicting race. Yeah. Yeah. But then we get, the, we, we get a, we get a line in, um, in this book specifically about uh, Captain Quirk, who I honestly wonder if that's a Star Trek joke. Uh, but anyways... Um, the, the, the specific line is, um, that Quirk was the kind of man to whom it comes to naturally to pronounce the word Negro with two G's. Yeah. Um, which is like, it's very clear what he's trying to say there, but at the same time, like when he's like probably 50 pages earlier made that, right. He's already made that thing. It feels like it's like you're trying. Yeah. It, 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 Feels almost conflicting, especially if, like, especially in a when like because you you see that that's not the case, right? In a book like Jingo, there's a whole thing about like race and war and stuff with the Arab coded country, right? Yeah, which, well, Justin doesn't know that yet, but I mean, we've seen that even in like sorcery. Yeah, you see that in sorcery as well, definitely. Yeah, yeah you see that in sorcery. Whether that is the lens of the author or yeah, it's there's but yeah, it's. You know, it's not 100% clear whether it's, like, color of skin versus foreigners. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because that's a very British thing, right? Foreigners is a very British yeah. concept, yeah. right? White white British perspectives on the Levant in general are not great. But, yeah, that, that, that line about Quirk 
made me made me pretty uncomfortable in that it's just being kind of thrown in and it, it does work well to characterize the character um but you know it's it being thrown in with the discworld racism versus speciesism bit um is just it it's very discordant and i don't think it's something that works and perhaps it's more discordant to us reading it i mean i i adamantly say that i'm not american because i'm not but i am and i spent a lot of my time in the american context right and so we might also read it in a very particular way because we're reading it in an american context where race history is different than in britain where they have a a more colonial kind of thing about ray while here it's not as much about colonialism and more about like clashes between race and slavery and things uh, so we might be perceiving it also in a very particular way that is difficult to parse out and i read and, that and, when and, i was 12. and also you know prejudice is there are different notes to prejudice in europe than there are here in you know that you can have two sets of people who are both what we would consider white that have a lot of animosity right that and that's not really a thing that the u.s has quite as much that you might have some sort of regional antagonism but not to that degree and it's also sort of lampshaded by uh, our our friend CMOT Dibbler, uh, who I feel like is the most sort of American coded of the. Uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, Dibbler Dibbler just speaks with a New Yorker accent, and, and he, <laughs> he he doesn't. He wants every living species to live free and breathe free, and occasionally buy food, and buy his meat um, sausages in a bun. Yeah. So this is the worst part of reading these books: is that every time I read one of these books, I get an absolute craving for a sausage in a bun with fried but onions actually, and mustard. Yeah. Every yeah, because time. <laughs> I don't, I don't have the British experience. Because it seems to me that that's lampooning British street vendors who mm. like make mm, questionable meat stuff. But I've never had that experience. So I don't have the same level of oh yeah, weird meat. I'm like oh yeah, I really want to eat some sausage in a bun. Like I want to eat this. Yeah. Yeah. No. I. I. I think like I think out of like the 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 like various books we've read through quarantine here i've got to go get chili dogs at least like re- during reading like at least three of our last couple books <laughs> Just cause I'm, like, I'm going to make myself uh, a greasy eggy grilled cheese after this because now i'm hungry oh. again and i'm like i don't have any meat at home i'm out so i'll definitely but i want something umami so yeah with lots of dolomites in it, just like Molten's. <laughs> uh, I love how the bar is like one milk, three beers, one molten sulfur with all that was like really good. With an umbrella in with it. With an umbrella in it. <laughs> the umbrella slowly combusts. Oh, and and we we have to wait until till the next guards book to see my favorite bar. Oh yeah, I like that bar. Yep, that's yeah. a good bar. Oh, in so, feet of clay, right? It's the feet of clay. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. so. One of the things that I feel like has also stood the test of time really well with this book is this concept of nostalgia as a driving political force that I think was very prescient because we've we've seen quite a bit now and we've seen a lot of that throughout. Um, I mean, you go back to the 30s and it was there then, not just in Germany, but in a variety of countries. 
Um, and this, you know, the the make X place great again uh, sentiment um, has certainly been highlighted recently. And that's that's really where Deeth is like coming from is that he, you know, he wants to go back to the good old days where his family had power and money. You know, he wants he wants to go back to that time and that's what drives him at least. And it's it's sentiment that has driven a lot of politics recently. As long as there has been recorded history and generations and politics there is always a faction that wants to go back to the way that things used to be or to create a fictionalized version of a greater time in history. Oh, yeah. um, I look forward to having this conversation again with you in two weeks, Anna, for Babylon Project. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, nobody alive. There we go. Yeah, that, that works. Um, in Ankh Park remembers what it was like to have a king. Like, they don't know how it was. They just know that somebody got really pissed off and killed the last one. Yeah. Um, I, I just started imagining a an alternate, uh, a different leg of the trousers of time where Sir Terry wasn't taken from us by Alzheimer's uh, and is now writing a scathing critique of Brexit. Uh, yeah. What would that even be? I don't know. Uh, Ankh more pork trying to leave the dust. No, no, Ankh trying to leave more pork. <laughs> more pork. Yeah, yeah because Ankh is the rich, pork, yeah. the rich side, right? Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm. Um, do we want to talk a little more, bit more about uh, propaganda? No, I, think, I, covered I that. think that was something. Okay. Yeah, I think we, I think we covered it, and it was appropriately summarized with our, uh, our complicated conversation on that. Mm-hmm. I think I wrote it as initially like that as a gut reaction, mm-hmm. and then that was something of like observation was like. Yeah, no, it's complicated. Mm-hmm. This is a complex thing. It's a, no, it's not a yes/no thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I think we can move on without further discussion on that. I mm-hmm. felt like one thing that felt off to me was there's this kind of ongoing gag of there being many ways to commit air quotes suicide in Ankhmore Pork, where suicide is described as doing any Knocking of a number a of very stupid or... things. Yeah, walking alone through the shades at night. Yeah, and that really fell flat to me. Um, I didn't like that I, joke. I think, I think that's also sort of a legacy of the old policing in in Ankhmore Pork. You know, because they oftentimes, you know, have the, the night watch used to have bells with you know socks stuffed in them, so that when they rang the bell, it wouldn't really ring all that loud. Um, oh wait, is that a spoiler? Yeah, I, but I but I can see that it has like a victim blaming sort of tone to that. Yeah, um, yeah. Um, also, I think that the word "quirm" should have been vetoed by an editor um, a very long time ago, and <laughs> it was not. So now we're cursed with it forever. I mean, we do have a, a protagonist coming whose name is Moist. Moist. That's still a better word I, I, than quirm. I can't, I can't. I can't wait to like. I, we're gonna. We're gonna do like a B cut of just like me going with the mic and moist, moist. <laughs> <laughs> that's gonna be our. That's gonna. Hello, this is our Asmore Discworld podcast. I always find Patch's names really, really interesting because you have like interesting things like Angua, but then you have like Carrot, 
And I'm like, oh, okay. It was really, and, and, but like, you grow to like them, right? I'm like, oh, mm-hmm. yeah, I like, yeah, it makes sense his name is Carrot. Yeah, I, I, that, that's a name, you know? I, I, think, I think the goal is usually like, there are very few two-named characters or characters who you need to remember by two names. And I think that's that's a good just like, especially for such an expansive series. Yeah. All the names are memorable. Also, I think this is the first, just like, this is a random thing, but I think this is the first time that we get Veterinari's first name. Is it? Is it? I, I, I can't it remember, be. but I, I didn't. It might be. But Havelock is a perfect name. Yeah, 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 exactly. They're like, they're like, some names are like cool, and then some names are like, oh, it's just carrot or, or moist. Okay. Um, <laughs> to be to be fair, Moist did not want to be called Moist, mm. but that's but that's a book for a future that's podcast. A, yeah, two years from now. Uh, <laughs> and speaking of names, Mustroom Rid, Ridcully, and then the Burser. Yeah, 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 or the Dean, <laughs> the Dean. Right? Or the yeah. Dean. I, I think in Last Continent, the chair of recent ruins is just called Chair. They just call him Chair all the time, <laughs> um, which is like, okay, that's a choice. Yeah, I feel like this book also could have done with like ninety five percent less Gaspode content. Um, which the, <laughs> I mean, the dog subplot was interesting, but so if we if we maintain that the dog plot subplot is critical then i would like the gaspode content to be at least 95 percent less horny <laughs> i feel like bloody stupid johnson has been mentioned before am i wrong or was this, this your first something i don't recall but okay. I, I think this, this is the first also yeah. might be in the color of magic oh maybe but but it becomes a a running gag he's in nanny Og's cookbook i remember that um, which was funny because it's not even a main book. But I did like the scene where they went to see the Colossus of Moorpork and the mm-hmm. art and the Victory Arc or whatever. Uh, I thought that was really funny. Yeah. Um, and and then Gaspel's like, hey, you need me. His idea of showing you a good time is the Colossus of Moorpork. I'm like, that would be really fun. I want to go to the Colossus of Moorpork. That sounds really fun. Yeah. The trout pond that... Or the, the, the ho-ho the and the ha-ha. Yes. yes. Oh, I looked yes. up haha the first time I read it. I'm like, oh. And a maze so small that people get lost looking for it. Yeah, yeah, looking for it. Yeah, I like that. <laughs> the child the child is happy unless it wanted to turn around, in which case it got. <laughs> right. Um, yeah, lots. I mean, we're, we're 15 books in now, so the, the, the references to stuff come hot and heavy. Yeah. Got Rid Cully and the Burser. Yeah. So much, so much guild lore. Also, it. Oh, it God. warms my heart to see that Detritus and Ruby are still together after yes. moving pictures. Yeah. Uh, and also speaking of moving pictures, uh, Sham Harga's House of Ribs. Was that in moving pictures? Yeah, it was yeah. what Dibbler kept trying to advertise. Yeah, uh, Dibbler figured out subliminal advertising and started putting a chip for Harga's House of Ribs. Oh, almost I figured that. out subliminal advertising. <laughs> well, almost, yeah. This is also where death worked during oh really in mort yeah yeah when when death is a fry cook for like a hot minute oh interesting okay i I loved the the little thing in in shamaharga with with shamaharga uh 
who he had run a successful eatery for many years by always smiling, never extending credit, and realizing that most of his customers wanted meals properly balanced between the four food groups, sugar, starch, grease, and burnt crunchy business. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I think my favorite reference is probably Mastrum Ridkali and the, and because the wizard interactions I love and um, harking back, which was the first <laughs> book where Ridkali comes and becomes Arch Chancellor. Because you see him become Arch Chancellor at one point. Was it moving pictures? I want to say that that sounds right. I remember, the, yeah, because like the previous one died, right? From in, yeah. in Light Fantastic and maybe and, Equal Rights or something. And they chose Ridcully because he's, you know, he he was supposed to be a simple country wizard, and instead yeah. they got like a morning person. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I remember, yeah, and I like him and his interaction with his faculty a lot. I don't like the Rincewind books that much, but I like them because I like seeing the other wizards' interactions. That meme that you posted a, a while back, Justin, with the, the Terminator. I'm posting it in the chat right yeah. now. I'm finding um, it here. Because it's pretty much codified in this. I'm trying to find okay, it. Okay, I posted it in the chat here in Zoom. But this is, this is what I... Uh, yeah, um, it was it was a complete mystery to Russ from Ridkelly, a man designed by nature to live outdoors and happily slaughter anything that coughed in the bushes. Why the bursar, a man designed by nature to sit in the small room somewhere adding up figures, was so nervous. He'd tried all sorts of things to, as he put it, buck him up. This included practical jokes, surprise early morning runs, and leaping out at him from behind the doors while wearing Willie va- the Vampire masks in order, he said, to take him out of himself. I love that. It, that's like the that's like the, the Ridkelly Burser relationship distilled into a single paragraph. Yeah, and I, you see that a lot in Last Continent, right? Um, which I really enjoyed. So, I mean, I, the the Rincewind bits, eh, but the Wizard bits. Yeah, yeah. the Wizards get better. Rincewind kind of stays the same. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, gosh, yeah. It, it is a. It, it's one of those things where it's like. I think Rincewind was just like, it was the initial vehicle. And I don't think it's that anybody liked it. I think it was just that we got saddled with it. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Which is the one with the Agatean Empire? Oh, that's the last continent, right? Yeah. yeah we yeah. haven't gotten to that one yet. Yeah. We have been, we have been, uh, we have been gratefully devoid of Rincewind content for like seven months now. Yeah. Did you start with the color of magic, Justin, yep. for the podcast? Yes, yes, that was um, that was the I oh well, Good Omens obviously was the, was the first like Terry Pratchett thing I read, but it's like the first Discworld book I read. We started with book one, and are you guys going to do Last Hero, which is kind of weird in the continuity? Shrug, um, we'll, probably we'll have to we'll have to discuss that. Yeah, because it's it's a graphic novel, right? Right, right. It's it's yeah it's not a graphic novel in the current use of the word it's an illustrated novel right okay interesting but that that sounds it, it's gorgeous cool. though like you see the gods and stuff it's like gorgeous this really feels like what we've been working towards that like like especially like through like up through like from color magic to through like sorcery we get these little bits and pieces of Ankh-Morpork. pork. And if you go through our first episodes, you will hear that like, that is my instantly my favorite part of Discworld, just because I have a thing for like chaotic cities and like Ankh-Morpork pork is where if they had to do a fantasy movie, the Coen brothers would set that movie. Like if they had to do this world, they, the Coen brothers would do an Ankh-Morpork pork movie. 
it, it, it feels like all of the little bits and pieces that has been working towards and been added in just work together. And I, uh, Sean mentioned it of like you, this city is like, it is a character in itself. And like, you get that. And especially with like, I think Vimes and Carrot, they love the, they love living in the city and being part of it. Mm-hmm. And it really feels like this is the, this is sort of like the synthesis of like everything that we've sort of been trying to get to with Discworld. And it is the platonic ideal of Discworld as it has been pitched to me. Yes. Yes. I mean, it even has the boots theory. Out of like all of the, the various British genre fiction authors, I feel like one of those things that it's like, Ooh, I'd love to see this. I would have loved to see Terry Pratchett write 2000 AD for a while. Like, like give him a couple issues of that. That would be very, uh, like it'd be fascinating for me just because it's like, I like if like genre authors from Britain with strong opinions should at least get a shot at writing judge Dredd, even posthumously. (laughs) I I always thought it's amazing that um, Terry Pratchett's, daughter became such a celebrated games writer right like yeah yeah, yeah. really cool and the first time I'm like, oh that's a common name like no no it's not they're the same i'm like and i was like really like pleased i'm like oh that's so cool runs in the family <laughs> okay so now we get to the uh, the the two fun bits aaron what would you rate this book <laughs> so I would give Men at Arms six out of six points on an appointment sorry uh i mean a morning star Oh, what would you rate this book? I would give it a full complement of 56 Night Watch People. And Sharon, what would you rate this book? I would give it a complete meal of sauce, eggs, beans, and rat with ketchup. Gotta get that ketchup. And Justin, what would you rate the book? I would rate this 11 out of 10 new watch houses. And now we get to the sustained bit where Justin reads the back of the next book. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, I, I said, uh, so we are, we are officially done with men at arms. Uh, so it's going to be book 16 out of 40, which means we're going to be 40% done with this series. 41. 41. Right. <laughs> I don't know why, but whenever I look at the series, like on Amazon, it says it's a 40 book series. When you can scroll because they're not the counting, to... they're not counting the last hero. Mm. Yeah. But the funny thing is, is that when you scroll, is that when you scroll through the series, there are 41 items in the list. That's hilarious. <laughs> That's a very Pratchett. That, that's great. All right. So, Soul Music, a novel of Discworld. When her dear old granddad, the Grim Reaper himself, goes missing, Susan takes over the family business. The progeny of Death's adopted daughter and his apprentice, she shows real talent for the trade. That is, until a little string in her heart goes twang. With a head full of dreams and a pocket full of limp, Imp the Bard lands in Ankhmore Park, yearning to become a rock star. Determined to devote his life to music, the unlucky fellow soon finds that all his dreams are coming true. Well, almost. And this finger-snapping, toe-tapping tale of youth, death, and rocks that roll, Terry Pratchett once again demonstrates the wit and genius that have propelled him to the highest echelons of parody. Yay! We get more. We get. We get more sequel shit. Yep. yep. In fact, Susan. We get Susan. Uh, Susan. My one of my other favorite books out of the list is um, Thief of Time, and Susan is amazing. Yeah. Mm. Susan is so cool. 
I love Hogfather. It is my Hogfather favorite. Hogfather is, yeah. Like you said, the movie is pretty good. The Complete Discography is an independent production by four people who just really like these books. All opinions expressed during the show are our own. All quotes from primary or related works are used under the fair use doctrine and remain copyrighted by their original owners. The music from this podcast is sourced from Incompetech. That info can be found in the show notes. The rest of it is distributed under a Creative Commons 4.0 attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Share it. Please share it. But say where you got it, don't make money off it, and don't change it. Connect with the show at Pod, which is A-T-U-I-N underscore P-O-D or email us at atuin.pod at gmail.com.